This is Terry Mattingly of Get Religion. If you like our Get Religion podcast with Issues Etc. and all the other work we do, please help us carry on by making a year-end tax-deductible gift. You can make a secure donation at getreligion.org using a charge card or any other form of pledge you want to make. Thanks for listening, and thanks for following Get Religion. Please help us keep doing the work that we do. This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. You don't often read about Christian baptism in the news, occasionally, but here there are two headlines within about 10 days of each other, one in the New York Times, horse troughs, hot tubs, and hashtags, baptism is getting wild, talking about baptismal trends among evangelicals. Actually, a lot of it isn't really new news. And then there's one from the Washington Post, transgender people can't be baptized unless they, quote-unquote, repented, Catholic Diocese says. Why is baptism in the news? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. You've been covering religion as news for decades. Do you recall many stories about baptism? Well, the normal context for seeing a baptism story is when you see churches arguing about hymn books or something like the Book of Common Prayer. In other words, has something changed in the baptism liturgy? Has a a church that's modernizing its ritual kind of, you know, edited out references to Satan and evil and condemning Satan and evil? I mean, you see what I'm getting at, kind of a modernizing the liturgy sort of thing. The interesting thing about both of these stories is something that happens frequently in news coverage, which is where you... You simply don't have much or any historical background on the topic that's being covered. I really think that when someone becomes a religion writer, one of the things they need to do is get themselves a list of about 15 to 20 good church historians connected to the various traditions you know, that you're going to be covered. And I say church historian loosely. Obviously, the same thing would be true in the context of the different branches of Judaism and some of the different expressions of Islam. The New York Times story is the better of the two, and it's kind of like a, gosh, you won't believe what those crazy suburban evangelicals are doing now. What's funny is it it takes a lot of things as being unusual, when if you know anything about history, you know that they may be kind of unusual in the current context, but not really. I mean, for example, churches that are on oceans or large lakes or seas have been baptizing people in the ocean for a long, long time. It's extremely common along Florida and California coast and whatever. I remember in the Jesus movement back in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, you had news coverage. Yes, I can remember that far back, even though I was in high school and college. 
you had news coverage, including TV coverage of these mass baptisms in the ocean. And then you get down to a, a very interesting tradition, which is that if you if you know anything about southern Appalachia and the mountains, you know that driving down any mountain road, you're going to find Baptist churches built directly on streams or rivers for the simple reason that they wanted to be able to baptize people in the creek and in the river. I wrote a column about that years ago. Someone said that there's evidence that in some really rapidly flowing streams, they used to have someone do the baptism while someone else would stand downstream in case they lost control of the person who was being dunked. As this historian quipped, he said, you know, they wouldn't want to have to do two rituals on the same day, your baptism and a funeral, you know, under some circumstances. The Times article says it's unusual today that baptisms can turn into kind of a a boisterous affair with lots of celebration. Well, my gosh, I mean, that's (laughs) a pretty good description of the black church tradition involving baptisms. I mean, you could even see that in a Coen Brothers movie, you know, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? That was my thought in reading the New York Times story. It's like, all you had to do is just go watch Oh Brother, Where where Art Thou? You're not going to write this story. I mean, that was the thing that struck me was it presumed that there was this big shift taking place when, in fact, there was no shift at all really taking, maybe in individual churches, but for heaven's sakes, Willow Creek has a fake pond outside just for baptisms. Yeah. Yeah, it's a... Once again, everything just happened. Now, if you go down in the piece, there's there's some interesting kind of cultural background stuff. And it is true that modern megachurches have done away with some of these things. But that doesn't make them, you know, necessarily normal. Another thing that I was struck by was the, the reference in the the opening paragraph to, uh, I believe it's in the opening paragraph, um, or somewhere right near the top. No, it's in the second paragraph. Talking about using a galvanized steel livestock trough was hauled on stage at the church in order to be able to do a baptism that uh, the Reverend Russell Moore took part in. Well, I, I laughed out loud when I hit that for the simple reason that anybody... Well, once again, maybe this isn't a large movement, but it is kind of interesting. If you know something about evangelistically driven Eastern Orthodox or Catholic churches, and there are some of those, pretty much all of them now own a horse trough. In fact, this coming Sunday morning, the official St. Anne Orthodox Church horse trough in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, will be pulled out and filled up because we have some adult converts to baptize. And you don't put an adult convert in the tiny little baptismal font in a tradition that baptizes by immersion. And so what I'm saying here is that if you have some historical background, you could have added a whole lot more context to this. In fact, I would argue that there was a very solid news hook for this New York Times story, other than novelty. The novelty's fun. I understand that. It gives you some nice photography. 
But another reason that some Protestant churches are no longer building immersion baptismal ponds, pools, tanks, tanks the right word, I should know that, I grew up Southern Baptist, behind the choir loft and behind a set of curtains that were opened and closed for baptisms like they were in the Baptist church in which I grew up, one of the reasons some churches are no longer have those is quite frankly a negative reason. They don't have that many baptisms to do. And the, the, the number of baptisms have plunged in the Southern Baptist Convention and in some other churches in which immersion baptism used to be a big thing. I would also say that in a lot of kind of moderate Baptist churches, they're no longer rebaptizing people who becomes Baptist or evangelical because they're scared of offending them. So people who were baptized as infants are not being rebaptized when they enter a Baptist church, which is something that for theological reasons used to be normal. That, you know, if a person joined a Baptist church and long ago they had been baptized by immersion as a Methodist or a Episcopalian or a Catholic or whatever, they would certainly have been baptized again by immersion. So there's another point of theological controversy that could have entered into this story. And trust me, the Southern Baptist Convention, the Baptist press and other publications related to Baptist life have written lots of stories about the declining number of baptisms. So you had a chance there to call up a historian or call up someone else who charts these things and ask, is it possible that some people are beginning to change the architecture of their church because it's getting harder and harder to do evangelism of teenagers and adults and other people that you know that you need a body of water in which to baptize them by immersion. So there's news here. There's certainly news here, but the news isn't quite what the New York Times seems to think that it is. So Terry, turning to the Washington Post story, the headline puts the word repented, transgender people can't be baptized unless they've repented, in quotes, Catholic Diocese says. Is that a scare quote, or is it a direct attribution quote? Well, once again, here is a question where you needed to talk to a church historian or someone other. I mean, what they did is the, they called the diocese back. And you end up with that infamous line, a spokesperson for the diocese said no one was immediately available for an interview. Okay, and with that, I guess you're just excused from trying to find out if there are any facts you need to know about what is happening here other than the facts you are given by a series of liberal Catholic activists. Okay, so let's talk about what's in this story. The story gets one thing right, that the primary baptisms that would be affected by this would be teenagers who have joined the church as Catholics, been confirmed, and need to be baptized as a part of their confirmation, kind of teenage converts to the church. And the other, obviously, would be adult converts to the church, who, as a part of 
coming into the church need to be baptized. And, and so we're back to the issue of adult baptism. Now, what you would find out if you even talked to anybody who knows anything about Catholic liturgy and wants to discuss the facts, it's treated as if this Diocese of Marquette policy is really, really strange, where it's really, really strange if you leave out one crucial detail. When someone converts to the Catholic Church, or when someone converts to Eastern Orthodoxy, confession is a part of our tradition. And what happens here is you prepare for your confirmation and to enter the church. One part of that process of preparing is a first confession. In Eastern Orthodoxy, it's referred to pretty frequently as a lifetime confession. Now, that obviously can be a pretty intimidating situation. And as someone who went through that process myself, what you end up doing is sitting down with a notepad with your life, and, and you look, very frankly, at things that have happened to you and situations that you have been a part of, and you end up, and, I mean, no one expects you to remember everything that you've done wrong in your life. But a good priest is going to guide you through some obvious situations involving the teachings of the church and ask you how you handled them or you know were there any issues at this point or if you raise a situation that's clearly a mortal sin you know in the in terms of the theology of the church this priest or spiritual father is going to ask you follow-up questions well so now we get to the fact that the roman catholic church has teachings on the subject of transgenderism, and that these teachings have been agreed on both in the U.S. Church, and then again you even have someone, uh, Pope Francis, has made some very striking, <laughs> to say the least, quotes about gender theory, and when he talks about gender theory, he's talking about the blurring of the lines between male and female, and he, he's asked the church to accompany people, there's that big word, accompany people as they try to, to deal with changes in their lives. But at the same time, this is a man who has referred to gender ideology, he once said, is demonic and violates the order of creation that's at the center of the Catholic Church. He, he also, on another time, compared people teaching gender ideology in schools and whatever else. He compared it to the educational policies of Hitler, and that is a direct quote. Then you, you, you see more subtle quotes in other places where he's kind of modifying his words and trying to soften them. There's a, a book called the, This Economy Kills, Pope Francis on Capitalism and Social Justice, and he said, let's also think of genetic manipulation, of the manipulation of life, of the gender theory that does not recognize the order of creation. With this attitude, man commits a new sin, that against God the Creator. The true custody of creation does not have anything to do with the ideologies that consider man like an accident, like a problem to eliminate. God has placed man and woman at the summit of creation and has entrusted them with the earth. Now that's a milder statement, 
But what he's saying is that there are Catholic doctrines about the order of creation, and there's theology here. So if that's the case, and if the church has very clear teachings on changing gender, which the Pope in another statement stressed, he was not talking here about people wrestling with homosexual orientation or some other issues that don't involve the changing of their physical bodies as the way you have with transgenderism. There are teachings here. So I guess I could turn this question around and say if someone is going through a lifetime confession leading up to their baptism, and they are transgender, would anyone be surprised that the Roman Catholic Church would have questions about that? And the fact that they would consider a transgender switch to be a violation of creation, and thus, here's the big word that's hard to use, sin, from the viewpoint of the Catholic Church and its teachings in the Catechism, and even in the teachings of recent popes, including Pope Francis. So what we have here, that half of the story is simply not present at all because of one sentence. A spokesperson for the diocese said no one was immediately available for an interview. So at that point, there's no need to call conservative Catholic groups. There's no need to call church historians. There's no need to call the nearest Catholic university and talk to people in the chaplaincy office. There's not even a, a need to call up a big, huge Catholic church in your city that probably deals with converts a lot. None of that is necessary. The other thing I wanted to stress is at one point in this story, there's a discussion with the leaders of an organization, which they're back in the news this week, in fact, and that is an organization called New Ways Ministry. And New Ways Ministry is treated in this story as if this was a mainstream group in the life of Catholicism, and that the theology they're saying is kind of normative or mainstream Catholicism. And New Ways Ministry is an organization that after an investigation by the Vatican was actually in a public statement address that this is an organization that even though it's led by a priest and a nun, this organization has nothing to do with the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. And it was considered just kind of expelled from Roman Catholicism. And the author of that particular piece of paper doing that was Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, and of course, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger becomes Pope Benedict XVI. Here in the United States, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, at that point with a document written by the late Cardinal George of Chicago, did exactly the same thing. So if you're going to quote New Way's ministry and make them a part of this debate, please hear me say, it is perfectly acceptable to quote New Way's ministry as an example of the thinking on the Catholic left that is coming at this issue from a position outside the mainstream of Catholic life and thought. What isn't okay is to quote New Way's ministry and not mention whatsoever 
the fact that this is a controversial group and, you know, their history. There's decades of controversy about this, dating all the way back to a story that I wrote about this group in Denver in the 1980s. A copy of my story was sent to the Vatican, and I found that out later through subsequent contacts from church leaders. They've been around, and there's a history here, and you can't just quote them and say, okay, this is normal Catholic thinking. So once again, we have half of a story that's a very important story. It's a story that should be written, and this story should include voices on the Catholic left offering that perspective and point of view from people who disagree with church teachings and want to see it change. But you can't just publish a sentence that says, oh, by the way, this one diocese didn't call us back, and at that point, you're good to go with a story that includes nothing from the catechism or the other official parts of the Catholic Church. So was this journalistic ignorance, which is perfectly possible, or was it, look, we don't have to tell the other side of the story, especially if the diocese is so rude as to not give us a statement? I don't think we can know that. The story was written by a general assignment reporter. It was not written by one of the veteran religion reporters at the Washington Post. I think this was treated as a political, social issues story. And you had all the people on the left were extremely happy to talk with you. And you're sitting there with a notebook full of quotes, and the one group of people you can think to call don't call you back, and editors don't catch it. My point here is not so much about this reporter. It's about the editors. How do you let a story like this on a story this controversial make it into print with no references to church teaching on the subject, no quotes from a church historian, a worship leader, a priest on the other side of the issue, and no quotes even from Pope Francis on this very controversial topic? I just can't imagine that happening. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He is author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at GetReligion.org.